Now, you may remember, and may still can find, uh, a chart entitled Longevity Chart from Adam to Joseph. Uh, Gordon did that for us, um, oh, some weeks back, a couple, three months ago, whenever it was. And uh, it would be good if you can find that, maybe to bring it to services uh, tomorrow, tomorrow evening. Uh, I, I have use of it, and I think it can be made to be of value to us either tomorrow evening or the next evening or whenever I get to it, but uh, it would be a good uh, supplement to what we're going to do. Someone asked a question about dress for Bible studies at 7.30 in the evening on during these days. Uh, while I would say it might not be necessary to come in full church dress, I think that we should, we're coming before God, a service dedicated to Him for our benefit, and I think that maybe casual church dress would be appropriate. I don't think men need to wear jackets necessarily, but maybe slacks or something of that nature, and women maybe, what, what would medium casual be? Not shorts, not sweats, <laughs> you know, or bib overalls. I'm talking about men there probably, uh, but uh, dress... Casual but nice, uh, I, I would say, for those services. Maybe not quite as much as we would for a Sabbath, if that makes any sense. Now, today we have something special, I see, before the sermon. It's called Special Music, but it's entitled Waltz. I think we're going to have a dance. Uh, no, it's, it's actually... We just finished a series on the two trees. Uh, I, I'm not going to go there again today. Uh, we, we finished that. We'll move on. But a maybe two-minute thumbnail sketch. We saw that Adam uh, sinned, and he is typical of all mankind. That by sin, or sin, Adam entered the world through Adam. And that by one man, Christ, sin can be expunged from the world. We read that last night, I think Romans 5, somewhere in there we read anyway. Uh, and how Adam has come to represent mankind and all of our sins. And Christ has come to represent the abolition, the expunging, to get rid of all our sins. Now this is a process <clears throat> that began in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were made and broke the law. Now, the law had not been codified to them yet, but certainly they broke the first and great commandment as spoken by Christ by dismissing God the Father and putting Satan and themselves in his place, which was idolatry. And that immediately brought recognition and shame upon them because they had crossed the line from good to evil. And that law is, or that difference between good and evil is expressed in the law of God. Now, this story comes to a healing of that breach between man and God that has its climax in Revelation 21 and 22, where once again the tree of life is now offered to mankind, not as a promise, but 
literally in terms of eternal life being bestowed upon human beings. And at the crux of the matter is that the law had to be kept. And getting on the good side of the law and having the penalty of breaking it removed by Christ is the key to the whole thing. Now, it is through grace that we are saved by faith, and faith, not of ourselves, uh, but it has to be demonstrated by works. So, commandment-keeping and works are prerequisites to, have, to being given grace, which is pardon that we do not deserve, and it means also a restoring of the relationship so that an attitude of love and grace and onemanship can be between us and God. And indeed, at Passover last night, we talked quite a bit, or Christ did in John 17, 16, about becoming one as He and the Father are. And that is His goal and His purpose for us. So between Adam and the return of Christ is a great gulf of sin and death, Misery, tears, pain, war, blood spill, lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fornication, uh, Sabbath-breaking, idolatry. Everything that is bad that man, through Satan, can accomplish, we have pretty much done. So much so that even once God destroyed all but eight souls and He's threatened to again and thought about it. And He's going to almost destroy them again here at the end. If it weren't for the very elect, no flesh would be saved alive. That means there has to be a group of people known as the very elect. It is a very small group of people here at the end that will qualify to match that terminology. Now, there are those who have started groups since Worldwide broke apart that call themselves the Church of the Very Elect or something of that nature. I think that is gross arrogance. I think it is gross vanity. And it smacks of, we're rich and increased with goods, we're the best there is. I think that's a dangerous thing to take upon ourselves. I think it is much better to hang our heads and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, you're just a whole lot better off that way. And Christ expressed it in those terms. He would much rather see someone bow their head and say that than to say, look at me, Lord, you can just hardly wait to change me, can you? There, there's a total difference in approach there. <clears throat> Nonetheless, there have been problems. So, there is a repairing of the breach that will occur. Now, I want to talk in a new series of sermons about the in-between time. Between Adam and Eve and Revelation 21 and 22. Now, I was working on a series for Days of Unleavened Bread. I've been thinking about it some. And uh, I thought it might be encouraging, perhaps uplifting a little lighter fare instead of uh, pounding on us for another seven days. Uh, and then something kept coming back to me and was forced upon me in more than one way, actually. Uh, 
that I couldn't seem to ignore, and part of it had to do with some prophecies in the primarily the Old Testament. You know, we went through a series some time back about Babylon. Now, in the church, we had understood the Babylon was Satan's system, that he is the ruler of Babylon, he's the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world and all that. So the Babylonian system, in one way, or in a larger sense, is a worldwide system of Satan. On the other hand, <clears throat> there are specific prophecies in the Bible about what will happen to Babylon and that how her enemies will do it to her. So it is not the whole system at that point that is being punished and destroyed, both financially, militarily, and every other way, but it is a specific spot on the earth, if you will. And we went through, what, probably 30 sermons, going through a lot of different scriptures to show who Babylon was. We found the enemy, and it was us. Uh, interestingly, you put two periods on that, and it's U.S., the United States is the modern Babylon that will be destroyed. We are the leaders of the present Babylonian system that goes around the world, and Washington, D.C. is a Babylonian government ruling over a nation of Israelites, essentially that. So we went through that, and we made some definitions. The Bible itself, though, is the one that made the definitions. It wasn't some Lutheran preacher who didn't like the Catholics, who called the Catholic Church the great whore. Now, the great Catholic is a whore, but then so are the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Baptists. Sorry if I step on any toes. I don't think I will here, but if somebody heard this, it would. But that's okay. The Bible must make the definitions. Now, what I'm leading to by saying that is that there are prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other places which talk about Egypt. And I've been a bit mystified off and on over the last few years when I would come to those prophecies about Egypt because I wondered, what does Egypt mean in modern-day terms? Who is this talking about? What nation or nations are we discussing in prophecy, because they are definite and specific prophecies. Now, is Egypt just a general catch-all for sin like the world? I mean, like Babylon is for Satan's system? That is perhaps true to a degree, or in a larger sense, like Babylon is. But is it more specific than that? What do we do with all those prophecies? Who do they fit? Because they are talking about specific people who will be punished, destroyed, or blessed, or whatever the particular prophecy might be, regarding those individuals. And it's not talking about all individuals on earth, because there are many other prophecies that talk about other peoples, other nations. So Egypt as a whole is one thing, if it represents sin, but then... What do those specific prophecies have to do with? Well, that's a question that has come back to me over and over because I would ponder sections of Isaiah or Jeremiah and say, what is this talking about? What does it mean today to us 
to the world around us and to which specific people on this earth? Is it talking about a nation in northern Africa that doesn't amount to anything, which is a third, maybe fourth-rate nation today on the earth? And all these majestic prophecies and some of the things that seem bigger than Egypt and North Africa could accomplish today. It just didn't seem to fit. So, what's the answer? Now, before getting into all of that and beginning to make some definitions, I want to briefly consider the church of God and the mindset that we have had because we began to keep the Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, and go back and read Exodus 12, 13, 14, and all those scriptures and various other places that unleavened bread and sin and Egypt are mentioned. And to the church, over the decades, it came to be that we always equate Egypt to sin. And unleavened bread is that sin that has to be put out as we come out of Egypt. Now, where did we get that bias, that approach, that mindset about Egypt equaling sin, and especially during the days of unleavened bread? I think we should review that before we go to some of these other questions. Uh, let's start in 1 Corinthians 5. This is one that traditionally has been used in the church. I'm going to a much bigger picture than just unleavened bread and sin, but this is the first day of unleavened bread. I think that it is good for meat in due season to go back and review some of these things, and let's understand where we got our approach, our mindset. Now, the context here is of incest going on within the church at Corinth. Of course, the law was done away, and I don't know why Paul would even address this, but we know the law was not done away, and incest in the church was not a good thing. So, I suspect he may have written this book during the Days of Unleavened Bread, because that is the context that he uses to discuss this particular problem. He might have, it had been a different time of the year, addressed it with a different analogy or a different approach, but he used the Feast of Passover. So he said that this person, in verse 4 of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, uh, in the name of our Lord Emmanuel, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the eternal Emmanuel. In other words, put this person out of the church, which is out of the presence of God, and turn him over to Satan, uh, and maybe that will wake him up so that he can repent, get back on track, and be saved when Christ does return. So he wasn't once saved, always saved, even though he was in the church. He could be turned back over to Satan, to his own vomit, and he could lose out. And Paul wanted to be sure that that did not happen, uh, as I think it is James that says, of some make, have compassion making a difference, others jerk out of the fire. Now this man had gone into sin so de deeply that Paul felt he needed to be jerked out, not gently admonished, but even put out to get his attention. Then he goes on in verse 6, <clears throat> Your glorying is not good. 
they were kind of laughing at or smirking about this and, and accepting it. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he says, this man sinning among you is eventually going to affect the attitudes of all of you, and, and already is really if they were glorying about it. And pretty soon the whole church is going to fall into sin. One bad apple ruins the whole barrel. The principle. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that which represents sin, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So in this particular context, leavening did picture sin, and Christ was unleavened, that is, He had no sin except ours, and He died so that ours might be removed. So that sacrifice removed the leavening, or that which pictured sin during these seven days. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, sins, our old ways, our own way of thinking, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So put away the human way of thinking, the selfish, grasping, greedy, uh, malice, wickedness, backstabbing, gossip, nastiness of one kind or another, law-breaking, and keep the unleavened bread, that which is not puffed up, vain, egocentric, and selfish, with deep sincerity and truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. So that's what he had managed uh, had, uh admonish them to do. Now, where did he get that? Let's go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. We'll pick up the story of where we were last night, or at least the roots of the story. <clears throat> we were in <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Christ's life and sacrifice last night, but what he did then was rooted in what God told them when they came out of Egypt. Now, that was a long story, 430 years of them being in Egypt. And God brought them out of there by great signs and wonders and miracles. And this event, this period of time, is commemorated over and over and over in the Bible. So many places, the Red Sea and Egypt and God delivering and so on are mentioned throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, Psalms, Acts, uh, on and on and on it goes. We'll not go there today for sake of time. We know that story. But here in Exodus 12, where this began, they were to roast a lamb on the, at the beginning of the 14th, uh, roast with fire and unleavened bread, verse 8 of chapter 12, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire. Now, fire typifies the refining process. You refine silver, gold, other things with fire. Fire burns. It kills bacteria. It kills germs. It kills disease. Uh, sometimes when a virus is going around, perhaps uh, some kind of a contagious thing, they burn pillows, they burn bed clothing, they burn clothes, they wash the body, they burn everything but the human body because it doesn't hold up too well to fire. 
but they try to get rid of that which is foul, destructive, and so on, through something that is in itself destructive and is fire. So they were to roast that with fire. And you shall let nothing of it remain till the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. Now you begin to get the feeling here that this was something that was good for them, but there was nothing to remain of it. It was to be a complete thing. It was to complete a picture. It wasn't something you picked at for days as leftovers. It was something that was important and singular, and the picture had to be finished that night, if you will. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Eternal's Passover. Now, had Moses thought that they were not even going to begin to leave Egypt until the following night, what's the purpose in being so ready to go at a moment's notice, I wonder? After the firstborn were killed, word was sent to Moses and Aaron, get out of here and get out now or you will all die. And I think that as soon as that message came, they left by night. They probably had already spoiled the Egyptians because that's mentioned earlier. Anyway, we'll not go back through the whole Passover paper. But they were were to haste out of there. They weren't to wait around, to dilly-dally. When we find sin in our lives, we need to get it out as quickly as possible. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Eternal. So he was going to hit the gods and the firstborn, which are cherished, to show that he was God. So that is much of the purpose of what occurred here. Who is God? The Egyptians didn't know, and even the Israelites said, which God are you talking about? Because they didn't know him anymore either after 430 years there. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be to you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the eternal throughout your generations." Passover is a feast. That day. Not the following day, but that day. And that is the night that is remembered over and over in Scripture. That is the night the important stuff happened. The Passover was done. The firstborn were killed. They left in haste, having been ordered out. That is the day that is memorialized in Scripture. And it is the day here that would be kept as a feast throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance, an order, forever. All right, now, here is one of the keys. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. So leavening during that seven days pictures what? Isaiah 59 gives you a clue. 
It is your iniquities and your sins that have cut you off from God. So eating leavening during those days pictures sin in our lives, and it is not to be partaken of. So this is where we're beginning to get the mindset that we have about Egypt, about sin, and about leavening. Holy Convocation the first day. Uh, Let's see, verse 17, I think I want. Yes. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So even named the feast following the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the remaining six days. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the 15th, 14th day of the month, at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. And it shall not be found in your houses, and he that does eat, it says, will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. So he uses quite a bit of verbiage here to explain that this is a no-no during these seven days, and that it cuts you off. So, let's comprehend that what we are talking about here is a big deal. God had taken Israel into Egypt on purpose in a very dramatic way through Joseph and all the events that transpired with him. Then he had kept them there. They were made into slaves there. And then he prepared a way to deliver them later on and to bring them out of Egypt. Now, for the sons of Abraham to go through what they went through all that time and then to come out with a high hand under the guidance of God, and for the land of Egypt to absolutely be destroyed behind them is a big deal. There is even a verse in here somewhere that says, don't you yet understand that Egypt is destroyed? That those plagues that came on Egypt, plus the drowning in the Red Sea, destroyed Egypt as it then was. When God says He wants sin out and He wants something done, He does it in a powerful and majestic way. Now let's go on to Leviticus 23. I know there is not a great deal new here. This is review. But I do think we need to understand why we look at it the way we do and review these Scriptures quickly. Leviticus 23, uh, verse 17. <clears throat> no, wait a minute. 17 is not what I want. Oh, I, I want, this is a side note. Uh, verse 17. You shall bring out of your habitation <clears throat> two wave loaves of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the eternal. Now, Paul told the first fruits not to eat leavening during the days of unleavened bread. And here you have a symbolism at Pentecost following unleavened bread, where the first fruits, that would be us, 
and others, are pictured by leavening. So leavening is a good thing at times, but for seven days it is a bad thing. <clears throat> now let's go to, is this Leviticus or is this Exodus? Let me see here. I marked 34, verse 25. And I'm not sure whether I was talking about Leviticus or... I don't think I was talking about Leviticus. There aren't 34 there. It must have been back to Exodus. Okay. <clears throat> Exodus 34. Now, verse 23 says, Three times in the year shall all your men, children, appear before the eternal God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither shall any man desire your land when you shall go up to appear before the eternal God three times in the year. That's quite a promise, isn't it? That when you go to the feasts, uh, God will cause nobody to lust after, covet, or take that which you have while you're gone. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavening. Neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. Now let's see. I want to go to Exodus 13 again. Let's kind of go back the other direction for a moment. Exodus 13, <clears throat> again telling the story of the Exodus. Exodus 13, and here... Uh, let's start in verse 3. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Eternal brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day came you out in the month Abib. And it shall be when the Eternal shall bring you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall keep this service in this month. So in the month of Abib in the spring, second time that they came out of Egypt, they were to do this once they went into the promised land. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the eternal, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with you, neither shall there be leaven seen with you in all your quarters. And you shall show your son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Eternal did to me when I came forth out of Egypt. So this was something that was to be done year after year after year after year as a memorial, as a reminder so the events that occurred there were so important that God wanted them remembered, taught to the children, and reviewed every year. And it shall be for a sign to you upon your hand and for a memorial between your eyes. <clears throat> now, we have talked about Exodus 34 and the weekly Sabbath being a sign between God and His people. <clears throat> but here, the Passover is also... A sign between God and His people. So not only the weekly Sabbaths, but the holy days, and particularly this one as a memorial, that the Eternal's law may be in your mouth. 
So what this is all about then is bringing them out of that which was lawless and full of idolatry and bringing them to, to the true God and His law. So the law is tied up in Passover because without the law, you cannot have sin. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. That the eternal's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand has the eternal brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 16 and pick it up in verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Eternal your God. For in the month of Abib, the Eternal God brought you forth out of Egypt by night. Uh, and I believe that it was the Passover night. Now, they had been instructed to stay in their homes until morning. Uh, but once the firstborn had been struck, the dirty deed of the evening had been done. It was past midnight. Uh, Morning was coming, and uh, they were told to leave immediately. I believe they began to do that at that time. And they gathered at Ramses and then went on out as a group the next night. You shall therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the eternal your God of the flock and the herd in the place which the eternal shall choose to place his name there. Now, we know from other and I won't review that, we've been there before, that he chose Jerusalem and Zion. That is where the feasts were to be kept, in that area. Or if you could not go, it was too far, you could do it at home. But you couldn't do it anywhere else. Those were the only two places that were designated. <clears throat> you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Therewith even the bread of affliction... For you came forth out of the land of Egypt in haste. They had been afflicted there, and they came from there in a big hurry. When God got them out, He got them out quickly. That you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. This is a singular heard forever. I keep fading in and out here, it seems like. Or at least the mic does. I may too. Verse 4, And there shall be no leavened bread seen with you in all your coasts seven days, neither shall there anything of the flesh which you sacrifice the first day at even remain all night until the morning. Now notice he calls the Passover night the first day of the seven. Uh, there are those who say that this should not be in the Scriptures. If you find something that disagrees with your prejudice or your view or your belief, uh, you simply say, well, that must have been messed up. I don't think so. It fits the rest of the story when you understand the story. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which eternal your God gives you, but at the place which eternal your God shall choose to place his name in, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at evening at the going down of the sun at the season that you came forth out of Egypt. Now, what's so difficult about that? The end of the day at dusk, at the going down of the sun, some people say, well, it starts going down at noon. 
No, it doesn't. It stays up a long, long time after that. He said it two ways here. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which eternal your God shall choose. And you shall turn in the morning and go to your tents. Now, if you started in the evening and you turn in the morning and go to your tents, that means that you were out and you had a vigil and then you went to bed. So I think we're on good ground by saying that it's a good night to stay awake and do some meditating, praying, studying, soul searching, and so on. Seven days shall you number to you, begin to number the seven days from such time as you begin to put the sickle to the corn. Then he's going to go on into... Passover and so on. Uh, now I want to go back to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. And here pick it up in about verse 10. <clears throat> he says here, Six years you shall sow your land and shall gather in your fruits thereof. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie still, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner you shall deal with your vineyard and with your olive yards. So he's speaking here of the year of release, the seventh year, uh, which we have begun to do as a group as opposed to just individually to become one and the body melded better together. Six days shall you do your work and on the seventh day, getting back to the physical Sabbath, uh, you shall rest that your ox and your ass may rest and the son of your handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all things that I have said to you, be circumspect. Uh, Sabbath is not something we take for granted. Circumspect means be very careful with. Uh, if there's a cactus, how do you walk around it? Clumsily or circumspectly? You're careful. You don't like thorns in your foot. That's why he says, get your foot off my Sabbath in Isaiah 58. Don't think your own thoughts. Don't do your own pleasures. Rest. But do God's pleasure and have your mind on the things of God on the Sabbath. It's set aside for that. Um, so be circumspect with the Sabbath and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of your mouth. Now the world is full of idols. It's all full of all kinds of things that take us from God. And you can make an idol of anything that takes your time, your attention, your capacity, your ability. This is a day to be set aside for God. Now, when they came out of Egypt, it was with a Sabbath, a feast, a memorial, that they might remember God and put all other gods out of their thinking and out of their lives. And he did it in such a way as to impress them. They had been worshiping the Egyptian gods, hadn't they? What had the Egyptian gods done for them? They were living lives of slavery. They, were had, they had pretty dull and boring lives. 
with hard work, not much reward, and not much fun in life. That's just what life was. And they worshipped the gods of Egypt. The alligators and the flies and the lice and... Why would you worship those? But they did. Now here was a God who did signs and wonders and destroyed all of Egypt, took them out of slavery, blessed them, opened the waters so they might walk through on dry ground, and then their enemies were drowned right behind them. Wow. Pretty impressive. You would think that after all the nothingness of the Egyptian gods, you'd tie it on to something pretty good here. And you would want to worship that kind of God forevermore, wouldn't you? You would think. Not just till you got a little thirsty. Verse 14. Three times shall you keep a feast to me in the year. So this is a feast to God. To remind them about God. It wasn't just a holiday to do their own thing, you know, maybe like Valentine's or something. But this was a feast to remember God. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven times, as I commanded you in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it came you out from Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. Now, here he mentions offerings that are to be given during uh, Passover days of unleavened bread. Now, why is that? What is he saying here? He's saying, I am the eternal God, and I want you to keep a feast to me three times in the year, and do not come empty. Why? Their lives had been empty, enslaved, working, dawn till dark, very little to eat, hard, demanding work, the lashes of the Egyptians across their backs if they disobeyed, if they rebelled, if they slacked up, if they didn't work hard, if they stopped to lean on the shovel, you know, or whatever, they felt the lashes. So there was no hope, there was really no purpose, there was nothing but work for the Egyptian, working for the man, as the song goes. That's all they had. Now, before they left Egypt, God said, spoil the Egyptians. Take their jewelry, take their gold, take their silver, take all the valuables of the Egyptians with you. Ask it of them and they will give it to you. They will have been going through these plagues and they're going to say, take it and go. Just like... In the end, God says they'll throw the gold and silver in the street. It doesn't mean anything when you got fleas crawling all over your body. And flies buzzing around your head. And a darkness so deep that you actually lose your equilibrium and can't stand and get sick and nauseous because of the dark. If you blame that on these slaves, you want them gone. So they didn't come out of Egypt empty, did they? God delivered them with a series of incredible miracles, got the Egyptians to thinking about, let's let them have anything they want as long as they go, and they did. So they came out of Egypt with flocks, with herds, 
Those things represented wealth in those days. And they came out with gold, silver, and jewelry. Everything of value that was remaining, because most of the flocks and the herds of Egypt had died, but anything of value that was remaining in Egypt, they took with them. Their lives had, be empty, had been empty, but they came out full. Everything they could carry on their back or that of their camel or their horse or their ass, they took with them. Now, part of the remembrance was that they bring an offering to the God who had made them full. That is the purpose of these feast day offerings that God has made. It is to remind us, God doesn't need it. He owns all the gold and the silver. It is we that we need to remember who God is. And that He is the answer to all of our deepest longings, as I think Philippians puts it. He is the one who has the keys to a joyful, happy, tearless, painless, happy life. He holds the keys to everything and anything good that we might ever desire, including longevity and peaceful, happy longevity. So he's the God that can fill our glass to the full. And we come to worship him and to remember him. And he wants us to bring to him an offering to say before God, you have blessed me and my life is fuller as a result of my relationship with you. Now, you may still have problems, trials, troubles, tribulations, and so on. As Christ said, and we read last night, in the world you shall have tribulation. So we still have our problems and our difficulties and our attitudes, and life sometimes is just a pain, frankly. We have all that. And yet, how much fuller is your life and mine knowing there is a God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth and created us and gives us hope for a happy, painless future. Wow. Now that's something the world doesn't have. They don't understand. So we have a lot. We understand why we're on the earth. We understand what the purpose of man is, where we're going, where we're headed, what's going to transpire. Sure, times might be difficult in the meantime. But that is to teach us, to show us, to work with us, to mold us and make us in the fashion that God is. If life was easy, we'd take it easy. It's when pressure is applied that we begin to what? Look to God. Life, things are great in your life this week. What happens to you? It's easy to slack up on prayer. The minute things get bad, what do you do? You go pray. So, things go bad, don't they? So, you will go and get your relationship with God right and keep building it and building it until the breach between us and God is healed. Until the point is that we are enough like Him that combined with the mercy and forgiveness of God the Father and Emmanuel, God with us, he will give us the gift of eternal life. That is our goal and our purpose, and it's what keeps us going. We've got a lot of sick people here. We've got a lot of people who are afflicted with this, that, and the other thing. And nothing else, old age. 
or young age. That's bad enough. But our troubles help keep us tuned in to God so that we might fulfill our purpose on this earth. I think it's important we understand the rationale, the thinking, the purposes that God has with us bringing an offering. Uh, We don't concentrate much on that here because in the past we had a government in the church that God was a little displeased with and it became too much about money and we are trying to change that culture. So I don't talk to you much about money and I certainly, we don't take up an offering, we just put the box there and that's between you and God how much you put in it. And we rarely even read these scriptures. But I think that since this is in the context of remembrance of who God is, it is important that we understand what God is thinking when he says bring an offering to his feast and do not appear empty. Because it is symbolic of how God has filled our lives up and blessed us. Therefore, he says, bring that which you can cheerfully give and according to your blessing. See, you count your blessings, you name them one by one, and then you make your offering based upon your relationship with God and what you feel He has done for you in your life. So it is an expression from you to God about how you feel about Him. Okay? It reflects your attitude and your relationship between you and God. And that's why he puts it on a monetary level. It is a gauge, if you will. You know, if you're rich and you have lots of money and you can just slap a bunch in there, it does not mean as much as if you were a widow with a couple of mites and you give it all. She was expressing to God by throwing everything she had in there, that you are my all. You are my Father. You are everything to me. You're more important than anything on this earth to me. Now, I don't think, by any means, God expects us to give everything we have. That is an example of a widow who was expressing the feelings in her heart. For a rich man to give a thousand bucks is nothing to him. For a widow to give everything she has, including what she would eat, is a big deal. Because it reflects her heart, her mentality, her relationship with her Father in heaven. You're everything to me. Now, isn't that what God ultimately wants of us? He says, turn to me with your whole heart. Make me the most important thing there is in your life. That's what it's about. And he said... You will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Not half-hearted, not Laodicean, not blah, blah, but wholeheartedly with all your being. So, he wants us to bring a, a an offering commensurate to how we feel we have been blessed in the time leading up to that particular holy day three times a year. We're reminded of this and our relationship three times a year in that form. 
If we understand and we put a link between a financial expression and our relationship with God, then it it helps us to regulate our thinking and understand what it is we're doing and why we're doing it and what it really means as opposed to just, well, God said, give an offering, I will. See, that doesn't mean a whole lot, does it? God said do it, so, okay, I'll do that. But what does it mean? If it means something, then it's worthwhile. If it's just something you perfunctorily do because, oh, well, that's what it says, I guess I better do it, then it doesn't express anything between you and God. It just is doing of a ritual. And rituals mean nothing in and of themselves. Uh, there was one other I wanted to tie together. I'll mention it in passing, Matthew thirteen thirty-three. Uh, let, let me go back and read that, because it goes back to an initial thought. I, I mentioned this sometime back in a sermon, just in passing. The leavening sometime is a good thing. Notice in Matthew 13... I tie this with Leviticus 23:17. If I was an organized person, I'd have put them together. I actually wrote them together, but I went somewhere else, so I'm a little organized. Uh, anyway, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 33. Another parable spoke he to them: The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of God's kingdom of heaven is a pretty important thing, and it's like leaven. Does that mean the kingdom of God's sinful? Which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. In other words, leavening, if it, if it uh, is referring to the kingdom of God that shall come, is a good thing because it spreads through the entire earth and the kingdom of God is world-encompassing then. So leaven apart from seven days during the year is a wonderful thing. Isn't it going to be wonderful when the kingdom of God begins to spread when Christ returns and spreads over the entire earth? It's like the kingdom of God is kind of hid right now, isn't it? There are very few people that understand truly what the kingdom of God is all about. Primarily, the dregs, maybe I should say the remnant, of the worldwide church of God. Very few others, if any understand what the kingdom of God is even about. It's like it's hid, but it will be revealed and then it will spread all over the earth. So that's a wonderful thing. So be careful when you speak of leaven and in what context. Sometimes it means sin, seven days out of 365 and a quarter, and the rest of the time it's like the kingdom of God that needs to be spread around the entire earth. All right, from there, as an interjected thought, let's go back to the book of Ezra. Here I want Ezra 9. Now, this was a time of great renewal. It's a time when they had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years and had come back to rebuild. And they were trying to get things straight. And in this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, having to do with building the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, There is a story of how they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover. They renewed those things in the land that God had given them before. And they were trying to get things straightened out. Now, in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, 
They'd been trying to get things straightened out, but the, peace, the people said, or the leaders said, uh, we, got, we got another problem here. It's kind of like us right now, grasping and grappling to try to restore all those things that we may have overlooked, all those scriptures we may have let fall to the ground, as Jeremiah tells us in chapter 9 not to do. Uh, they were trying to get things right. And every time somebody brings something or we find something, we study it out, we try to fix it to get it right. Well, here was a problem they brought up in addition to the ones they'd already straightened out. Uh, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. So they had come out of captivity, which was done to humble them, to try to straighten them out because they were already keeping uh, uh, the practices of false gods. They were doing wrong. They were living in all kinds of terrible sin. And God took them into captivity as a result. And there they should have repented. But here they were gathering again and they had brought Babylon with them just as Israel brought Egypt with them. It was in their very beings. They had been reared in Egypt. They had seen and took on the culture of the Egyptians around them. And it was part of them. What did they do immediately when they came out of Egypt? God had delivered them with a mighty hand, with great power. And as soon as they had an opportunity, hey, Moses went up the mountain. Let's play. So they all took off their clothes and started to dance and fornicate. That is the culture they had come out of in Egypt. And they went back to it, bang, just like that. Now, the same is true when they went into, Bab into Babylon, into captivity. Instead of repenting in Babylon in the way that they should have, they left Babylon and immediately continued Babylonian practices, Babylonian thinking. Are there some clues here? God tells us now, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her iniquities and her plagues, Revelation 18.4, and others. We have to get their thinking out of our minds. We are not just to move out somewhere away from the midst of Babylon, but we are to get the thinking out. We're not to think like they do, to act like they do to imbibe of the things in their culture that they have. It was the culture. They didn't bring the Egyptians with them. They didn't bring the Babylonians with them. They brought the thinking and the culture, the society, the habits, the gods, the holy days, the music, the whatever you want to name, they brought with them. And God did not like that. So he said, these people have not separated themselves from the people of the lands doing according to their abominations. They were not doing it God's way. They were doing it the world's way. We've brought a lot of the world here with us in our heads. And we bring a lot of it in electronically. Even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. 
So even though they had just come out of Babylon, they were bringing the cultures of these peoples named here. Who were all these people? I wondered that sometimes over the years. We're going to find out in the next few days just who this is talking about. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. So even the leaders were intermarrying, and it was not the intermarriage that was much the problem as it was bringing in the gods of those people. See, that's what led Solomon away. He married into some of these very tribes mentioned here, and it said that it led him away from God because of their pagan practices. Now, intermarriage is a debatable thing to some degree or another. But paganism brought in by pagan peoples that they intermarried with is not negotiable at all. And that's what is focused on here. It was the result of intermarrying with those people that caused the problems. It harmed the relationship with God again. How do you heal a breach when you're marrying people who have pagan practices and they want to pull you into it? When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. They were assembled to me, every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. It just overwhelmed Ezra to realize that even though they had come out, they were a remnant They were trying to get things right. There was still something horribly wrong (coughs) with their minds, their emotions, their practices. And that had to be fixed. Now, if we can see (coughs) the connection between Egypt, leavening, sin and transgression, and idolatry, and pulling us away from God... Then we look at the prophecies, not just the history of what occurred in ancient Egypt and coming out of there, not just what occurred in Babylon and coming out of there, as we're reading here in Ezra. But if we look at the prophecies that spoke somewhat of history, but laid down a picture of the future as well, saying that there's a pattern here that will be repeated, And it will be an end-time problem because Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were written primarily to the end-time people and primarily, above that, the end-time church, who would be the only ones who would really care because end-time Israel does not. So we are the only ones to whom this is truly addressed. So when we read of Babylon, we've gone through that, and we've seen that the characteristics of Babylon can only match one nation on the earth today, the hammer of the whole earth, the the nation that has made the other nations rich, and on and on it goes to prove that that can only be referring to 
the United States of America, even though Babylon is a worldwide system. Now, when I read those prophecies about Egypt, and it makes some pretty strong proclamations about the influence of Egypt, about uh, what will happen to the Egyptians, who in the world is it talking about? You know, people have an innate curiosity, it seems, to know what their roots are, where they came from, who they're related to. If somebody in the church can prove that they are in the line of David, oh, we got something here, baby. Or some people who might can prove that they are kin to Napoleon think that's a feather in their hat. Or whoever you might pick out in the past that you can find you might have been related to. Kid Rock or whoever that turns your crank. I don't know where did that name come from. Uh, but just anybody you want to pick out. Maybe George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. Hey, I'm related to Tom Jefferson. That makes me better than you, doesn't it? Because he was a great man and I'm related to him, so I must be great too, not necessarily. But the Mormons spend a lot of time searching their genealogies. Well, they're doing it partly because they're trying to find somebody that wasn't baptized and get dunked for them. Uh, I don't know how those people are going to repent but, and be baptized, but they get dunked for them. So there are various reasons for looking at the past. But I've always been, as a child, interested in my grandparents, my great-grandparents, where they came from, what they did, who they were related to. I remember my great-grandmother Miller, who lived in Happy Valley, which is just north of where Phoenix is today. wasn't anything there but cactus at the time. Coming out in a covered wagon, and I would sit and listen to her. I was just a little guy, and she was in her 90s. But all I wanted to hear about Pancho Villa, and I wanted to hear about the Indian raids, and I wanted to hear about the, the covered wagon she was in, and all those things about her past and who she was related to fascinated me. Because I made a connection. That's my great-grandma, and she has all these stories, and I was fascinated with the American West and the trappers and the mountain men anyway. So, I had an interest there. Okay? Well, history is a very muddy pool of water. True history is. And understanding history is a key to understanding prophecy. Because God does things over and over, and he does them in patterns, and that which was shall be. So some of the things of the past are being repeated here in the end time, all those Babylonian things we've already discussed. But we haven't really gotten into Egypt. But doesn't Egypt affect us? Don't we still, to this day, as the early New Testament church did, keep unleavened bread, as Paul told them to do in 1 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 11 and other places? We still do it. It still harkens back to history when Israel was commissioned to do it, ordered to do it by God, and told to keep it as a memorial forever because it has meaning. I think it is very important that we go back and understand who the Egyptians were, what they were doing, what this was all about in a bigger picture than we have ever understood before, 
and bring it forward and apply it to the prophecies for today and how they may influence and affect our lives and what Egypt means to you and me and the rest of the world today. So I've laid a little background here to show our past mindset and why we're here today doing what we're doing and reviewed that. So we have that firmly in mind that this is a big deal for us and that the symbolism there of sin and getting it out and repairing the breach between us and God through the sacrifice of Christ needs to be accomplished so that we can be in the kingdom of God in the world tomorrow. That is as important as it gets. And this day is critical to that. But what are the ramifications? And when we read those prophecies, how do they apply? What do they mean? Who is it talking about? Who is Egypt? Who are the Egyptians? We'll pick up there.